Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, as we consider your Word this morning, we ask that your Spirit, he would be here and he would impart life to us. That as your Word is declared, that you would speak to your people here at Christ Bible Church. And anything that I would say that is not of that word, may it fall, Lord, upon the rocks and be forgotten. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So when I was last here uh, with you, we spoke about how the church was being built into the temple of God here upon earth. And this is, is done as we are joined to Christ, who was and is the rejected one. But he has become, because of God's choice of him, that cornerstone by which all the other stones of this living temple are being joined together. And Christ, as the rejected one, is meant as an example and an encouragement to us as the world rejects us. Remember, 1 Peter is written to a church that is suffering persecution from the world. And the divine irony of 1 Peter 2 is the twist of the story that Christ was rejected by men, but accepted by God. And we too will be rejected by men and accepted by God if we are in Christ. And we left off two weeks ago with this division that the Lord Jesus brings. That He as the cornerstone has also become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That is, he is the dividing line between those who are in the kingdom and those who are not. The church will, at some level, this means always be offensive to the world. That is how it is destined to be. This is not a defect. This is not a sign of unfaithfulness, but rather a sign of faithfulness when we are at conflict with the world. And in 1 Peter 2, 9-12 through this morning, Peter returns to describing what it means to be the temple of God. So he introduces it, this is, this is who you are, you are being built into this living temple of God. Then he speaks about the rejection of Christ that the world has caused, and now he's returning to that point. What does it mean for you and me to be a part of the people of God? We are basically examining the identity, or perhaps better put, the identifiers of the church. What are the realities that have changed for us? What does it mean to be united to this rejected one? We are asking, who are we? And such questions really are nothing new. Ever since the garden, with a break of our relationship with God, man has wandered about who he is. Who are we? What is this all about? Are we meaningless? Is there a purpose to life? Are we just highly evolved primates that just happen to be lucky in a cosmic accident? Or, as we've noted today, that these questions 
are the main questions that underlie just about all of our, our problems. We are adrift because we don't believe in truth. We don't really believe in meaning. As a society, we raise our children in a consumeristic nihilism. We tell them that they are nothing. They're just a different arrangement of atoms that will one day be arranged in a different order. And yet, we also teach them that they are everything. They are a god, as it were, because they get to determine what is true. They get to determine their own identity and meaning and gender and so on and so forth. No wonder everyone is so confused today. And yet, the more we gaze inside, the more our insecurity grows. Man is not a sufficient reference point for himself. We don't want to turn to God because then there are requirements. If there's a God, that means He can tell you how you should live. Our obsession with identity and finding our truest self is at the heart of so many of our problems, even and especially in the church. I've gathered some quotes here from a Christian book put forward by a major Christian publisher who used to publish such titans like Francis Schaeffer, but now publishes nonsense. And this book is written about a popular personality test that has come into the church and is now promoted as a way to do discipleship. You don't need the Bible. You need this personality test if you want to grow more like Christ. This is what the book had to say about it. Buried in the deepest precincts of being, I sense there's a truer, more luminous expression of myself. I'm going to start vomiting just like last week. And that as long as I remain estranged from it, I will never be fully alive or whole. Or how about this, this other quote, same book. How this personality test frees us to stop, quote, placing a mask called personality over parts of our authentic self. Now if you feel like you've just accidentally turned the channel to Oprah, I feel the same way. If this sounds like just the light version of the therapeutic false gospel of our day, you'd be correct. Now, there's nothing wrong with knowing who you are. There is something very wrong if that becomes the core of everything in your life. Your best life is never found by looking within. Your best life is not found in expressing your most authentic self. To put it plainly, you are not the highest good in the universe. God is. And yet, the question of identity remains important. The pages of Scripture never tell us, though, to find that within, but always tells us to find it by looking to someone greater than ourselves. You need something bigger than you to find out who you are. And this passage lays out those new identifiers or identities for believers who are united to Christ by faith. And the first identity that is given to you and me is that we are a chosen race. We are a chosen race. Those two words are packed with a lot of meaning. Chosen points back to this reality that Christ was rejected, but chosen by God. You too are rejected, chosen by God. And if you go back to 1 Peter 1, it's actually more of an eternal cho- choosing. That before the foundation of the world, God has chosen you. Now that should comfort us, especially as we experience the rejection that we often do in this world. And again, I know the depths of that rejection. Like many of you, I've lost 
longtime friends as our culture has shifted more and more into insanity. Some of my closest friends, who I used to talk to regularly, now won't even speak with me. My opinions haven't changed. Theirs have. I know for some of you that that pain goes even deeper. That your following of Christ has led to a rift in relationships among your family, even your children. I've commented on this before, but one of the marks of the extreme progressivism of our day is people, generally my age or around my age, cutting off of their parents because they disagree with them culturally or politically. This hit its peak in 2020. And so since then, I've seen parents cut off from their children and grandparents cut off from their grandchildren, all because they've been deemed unsafe for believing the same things everyone believed five minutes ago. Christ, though, this type of rejection, while painful, Christ has instructed you and me to be willing to lose even our closest relationships to follow him. That your family may come to hate you because you align yourself with Christ. But this is an important distinction I want you to hear. The New Testament also says that someone who abandons or refuses to provide for his own family is worse than an unbeliever. How do we reconcile those two things? Simple. It's about allegiance and priorities of allegiance. God and Christ come first. And in loving him, we are commanded to love others, including our family. Christians are not called to be the ones who cut off relationships with their families. If they demand that you leave Christ, or if they demand that you be unfaithful to him, then you must remain faithful to Christ. But Christians are not the ones who initiate cutting off their family members. Christianity is not like the cultist behavior of our day. Where only those who agree with you and affirm your choices are deemed safe. We love others, especially our family, but we follow Christ no matter what. So here is this focus. We are a chosen race by God. We only really talked about the chosen part. Now we get into the non-controversial idea of race. What does it mean to be a chosen race of God? And here we should be clear again. The Bible does not use the term race to refer to skin color or face shape or hairstyle. The modern ideas of race that you and I take for granted today didn't come into popular thinking or even not popular thinking, didn't really get introduced until the 15 or 1600s. So one and a half thousand years after the coming of Christ. Before that, They spoke about things like ethnicities or nations. And an ethnicity is far more complicated and diverse than a race as we refer it today. How? Well, ethnicities are more than skin color or face shape. It has more to do with culture or language or worldview and even religion. Take, for example, if you were to rewind world history, the Romans and the Britons both had white skin, but they were completely different ethnicities. Different beliefs, different customs, different practices. Skin color had nothing to do with it. Their cultures were different. And the further back in history you go, the clearer that becomes. So how does the Bible use the term race? Well, biblically speaking, the race is used either to refer to the human race as one, or the new human race being made in Christ, who is the second Adam. 
Biblically speaking, there are only two races, and again, it has nothing to do with skin color, but those two races are you are either in the first Adam or you are in the second Adam. That's it. And those two races cut across every other dividing line that we like to draw. There are people of every tribe, nation, and tongue in both of those races. But God chose, not based on any characteristic in us, that we would be a new human race. One that is transnational. And so the application here is clear. Your primary identifier has categorically changed. You are of the race of Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race rooted in the grace of God. You are founded, it is founded upon the blood of Christ. And that is now where your primary allegiance lies. This, fl- this flies in the face of the identity politics of our day, where we try to divide each other up into countless victimized classes or oppressors, and then we like to pit them against one another. Now just pause to think about that for a moment. If all we do is divide people into categories and t- t- or tally up griefs and offenses, what is going to be the natural result of that? We're going to hate each other. What are we doing? We're hating each other. So much so that even to say that we are one race is considered hate speech by some. Well, I guess I'll be on that bias registry in the state of Minnesota. It is not only a sad way to live, to do this, to act this way, is to become a pawn for those who want to use division for personal gain. And this takes root in the church. Let me give you an example. I came across a a Christian who wrote this. Twitter is a wonderful, wonderful thing. <laughs> he says, quote, My ethnic, non-believing brother will always be more of a brother to me than a brother in Christ of a different ethnicity. That's just the truth. Let me read that to you again. My ethnic, non-believing brother will always be more of a brother to me than a brother in Christ of a different ethnicity. That's just the truth. That's just a lie. That flies in the face of everything the Bible says. Will there still be certain things that your brother in the flesh knows better than a Christian will from the other side of the world? Of course. But that does not fundamentally make them more of a brother. Your primary allegiance now is to Christ. And you have the most important thing in common with anyone else, no matter what other parts or things they have, with that person. I am more of a brother in Christ to a Nigerian who confesses Christ than to a white American who does not. And that is the truth. It may not always work itself out that way, but it remains the truth. The New Testament universally goes in that direction. Ephesians 2 says the two, the Jews and the Gentiles, who were once far off and separated, are now one, one new people, in Christ. Galatians 3 says that now in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. Colossians 3 says this here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In case you want to know, barbarian, that's, that's a reference to all of us white northern European tribes where our descendants came from. Scythian, another ethnicity. Jew, Greek, 
you are not those things anymore. To promote any race over our status as the race of Christ is to subvert the Gospel. Now, having said all of that, of course, when you come to Christ, your ethnicity does not just disappear. Nor should we pretend like it doesn't matter at all anymore. Paul himself speaks about his affection he has for his kinsmen according to the flesh, speaking of the Jews. So you can have a right and proper affection for your fleshly ethnicity. But those things become secondary, not primary. And that affection should drive you to reach your other people, to join the people of Christ. Not to puff yourself up and say, hey, look, I'm whatever, fill in the blank. The next identifier that Paul ge- or Peter gives us is that we are a royal priesthood. Many of these identifiers here are echoes of what God gave to Israel in the Old Testament, especially during the Exodus. So we have this clear theme here that Peter is taking these titles given to Israel and he's saying now it's being applied to the church. Here he's citing Exodus 19, verses 5-6. through Listen to these words. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Peter wants us to see that in a sense, believing Jews and Gentiles are a new Israel. They are taking on the label of Israel. Of course, that has to be filtered through the work of Christ, and the church is not a one-for-one replacement of Israel, but that theme is right there, and you can't ignore it. So how are we a royal priesthood? What does that mean? to be a royal priesthood. The role of king and priest in the ancient world were often mingled together. And yet God in Israel intentionally separated the king from the priesthood. In fact, Saul, the first king of Israel, he gets himself in a lot of trouble because he starts doing the job of a priest. And he shouldn't do that in God's kingdom. God separated priests from kings. And yet, the role here is combined. They are certainly combined in Christ himself. Christ is prophet, priest, and king. And this goes back to what man was designed to be. Your original role, my original role, the role of mankind before the fall was that of being priests and king. What does a priest do? A priest goes into the very presence of the Lord God. Careful readers of the Old Testament will note the imagery of the most holy place in the temple and the tabernacle was that of the temple, or of that most holy place being that of the Garden of Eden. As you look at all the imagery, there's this entering back into Eden that only the high priest could do into the presence of God yet again. And this tells us something very important. Man was created to be a priest. Adam was the first priest. He lived before the face of God. And so mankind is a priestly line who was then removed from the presence of God. But man was also more than a priest at the beginning. He was also a king. God places Adam in the garden and he says, work the ground. He says, have dominion and spread that dominion or rule or kingdom throughout the ends of the earth. At the very beginning, man was to be a priest. 
in the presence of God, and he was to execute God's role or rule over creation as his king. In the fall, that's all kind of wrecked and ruined. But now Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king, has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he is subduing the creation as the second Adam. What we are in Christ then is a restored and a renewed human race. We are royal kings under the one true king of the universe. And so all of this universe is Christ and through him it is our inheritance. And we are now the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit on earth. That we live and move and have our being in the presence of God. What does it mean to be a royal priesthood? You get to enter into the presence of God in a way that the world does not. And you get to execute the rule of Christ over this world in a way that the world does not. The third identity is that of a holy nation. There's a lot of overlap here with a chosen race. By holy, Peter means that we are sanctified, set apart for the work of God in this world. And we are a nation that transcends the nations of this world. This nationality, again, is primary. My worldly nationality still exists, has claims upon me, but is not primary. And finally, we are a new people when we used to not be one. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received Mercy. There are two things, two definite shifts here. Once you were not a people, once you definitely did not belong to God, but now you do. How is that possible? Because once you had no mercy from God, and now you have received the mercy of God. Therefore, we cannot boast that, hey, look at how great we are. We're a chosen race. Hey, look at how great we are. We're royal priesthood. No, all of that is by mercy. All of that has nothing to do with what you have done. It has everything to do with what God has done. Peter then moves into a discussion of what does this mean for how we should live. In verse 9, he gives a hint of that. He says we are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ because now you are a part of the kingdom of light instead of the kingdom of darkness. You live in a new reality. You are in exile in a kingdom of darkness, but wherever you go, you are a missionary of light. And so we are noticeably different. And this comes in declaring the excellencies of Christ into all of life. And perhaps, unlike any other time in recent memory, it's never been easier to contrast how we live with the kingdom of darkness. Darkness pervades so many people. From their reveling in sin to their accepting of absurdities. To live in a way like Christians are called to do today, that is natural, is now viewed as extreme by those who are in extreme rebellion. But we live that way nonetheless because it is the right thing to do. And in this, we glorify God and we bring good to our neighbors. Peter continues in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As we live as exiles who have been rejected by men, 
but accepted by Christ, we are called to live with self-control and in an honorable way. Peter warns us that we still have passions that wage war against our souls. Uh, We have to note this is not all passions. We are not called to never have emotions or never to have desires or to be stoics all the time. Rather, we are called to have rightly ordered desires that are rightly aimed towards their God-designed ends. The most obvious example here is sexual desires. Having sexual desires is not inherently wrong or fallen. Sex was God's idea. But in our day, sex has become an idol. Is your chief goal. That is a passion that would be at war with your soul. Not any expression of those desires is good or allowed. Rather, the Christian is to aim and direct and express those things in a lifelong marriage between a husband and his wife, and that glorifies God. Peter here warns of sinful passions that dominate and destroy us. Passions that go against God's good design and his purpose. The ones that will dominate our lives and then lead us eventually from Christ. These things wage war against your soul. So brother and sister, wage war back. Sin is rebellion against God and it will always cost you more than you think. What is at the heart of our current insanity? A society that God is literally handing over to its sin. He says, you want it? Go ahead and have it. And it gets more absurd by the day. The old Puritans used to say this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Your sin is never neutral. It's never harmless. It always destroys and it always devours. The bloody bodies that are strewn around our current landscape scream out this reality. Sin is at war with you. It is killing you. So kill it back through Christ. So you are called to live differently. You are called to put off that sin through Christ and by the Spirit. You are called to live honorable lives and to live as members of a different kingdom. One of the main sins... Our our main sins today revolve around these two lies we've already talked about. First, everything's about me. Second, sex can be expressed in any way. And if you question that, you're a bigot. In this day, to live contrary to that is to be a light in darkness. It is to be faithful. To be a light today is to be a loving husband or wife or a righteous single person. It is to be fiercely loyal if you are married to one another. It is to have marriages filled with sexual fidelity and joy. It is to be fruitful and to multiply. It is to be good in every way unto the glory of God. With each additional child that we have, we get more looks when we go out in public. Sometimes smirks and sometimes pity is the look that we get. People will say, your hands are full. And my wife is fast to say, full of blessings. This is what it means to be a light in a dark age. Our homes, our parenting, our marriages should be filled with light because for so many, the home is a place of confusion, hurt, and chaos. 
Your home should be marked and your life should be marked with a dying to the self, a loving of others in sacrificial ways, the beauty of a Christian husband and a Christian wife in union and joy with each other, raising up the next generation is one of the most powerful things you can do in this age. This honors God and leads us to our last point. This is a form of witness in a dark age. Look at verse 12 again. Keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our motivation is that as we live out the gospel, we proclaim the excellencies of Christ, we use words, you have to use words to evangelize, but we also have to practice what we preach. Hypocrisy is always the enemy of the church, for it says that we do not believe what we say we believe. But when we suffer for righteousness' sake, the unbelieving world gets a blinding display of God's kingdom of light. And this will lead, Peter says, to some who are in the kingdom of darkness to come to the light, for they will glorify God on the day of visitation. What is this day of visitation? It's the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, we will see people who will be glorifying Christ because they came to faith, because they saw Christians living out the light. And they knew what they believed and came to faith. But for this to happen, we need to live lives of grace. We must put off the sinful passions of our former ways of living. We must be the temple of God on earth. And we must live out the new identities that Christ has given us. For we are, through that work, a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, those who have moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life, those who were not a people who now are a people, those who did not have mercy, but now have mercy. And may that mercy shine forth as we put to death that which is old in us. By the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again this morning that you have spoken to us in your word. We pray that we would manifest in our daily lives a dying to the self, that we would manifest that we belong to a different kingdom, that as this world's darkness sometimes appears to wax uncontrollably, that those trapped in it would look to your people and see a different way to live that they would see the light of Christ in us. Lord, we cannot do that except by your grace and by your Spirit. So we beg you, empower us to be those kind of people. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.